0: again I'm going to try to read the the context of these verses from 17 through 21 although our focus will be on verses 19 and 20 this morning. Galatians 2 verse 17. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. There is something funereal about this text. And that is a word. I did have to look it up. It means that something relates to what we consider to be a funeral. When someone has passed away. There is an obituary. That notice of a death. There is a celebration of life, which you encounter in many funerals. And there is a eulogy when someone is praised for their virtues and for their service. All of these elements, I believe, are in verses 19 and 20 of Galatians 2. But there's a difference. Between what we read here and what you would find, I think, in a typical American funeral. First of all, the one who died announces his own death. And there is more than one death that is written of in these passages. And there is also new life that Paul announces not only for himself, but for all who are in Christ. Now, there are some hermeneutical questions, and these are, at least for me and my Greek, difficult questions to wrestle with. Is Paul speaking as a typical Jewish Christian, one who was a Jew and became a Christian? Or is he speaking of, as I've already given the punchline, I guess, of every Christian. Is this an experience that every Christian ought to have or has had? Well, I think Paul is speaking clearly of the Mosaic Law. That's what he has in view here in Galatians 2. Not just part of it, but I would think the entirety of the Mosaic Law. But he does seem to speak, not perhaps explicitly, but implicitly of a universal type of experience, that he expects that Christians would relate and begin to understand the language that he writes here. He speaks of the law, dying to the law, and I believe that some of us, at least sometimes, have a wrong view of the law. And I would caution us, as Herman Ritterboss in his commentary does, by saying it fairly succinctly, Paul nowhere does injustice to the, either the gravity of sin or to the holiness of the law. Paul, as we talked about last week, has a view of sin that it is more than just, as we said, missing the mark but it is something which grieves and it is an abomination to the heart of God. And nowhere does he speak disparagingly or putting down unjustly the holiness of the law. He says it is right and holy and good. But in this context, we are dealing with an objection that has come in that situation that we heard some about in Sunday school in Antioch, I think before and now in Galatia, there are some who have come to him, and perhaps directly or indirectly he heard this, that if you've been found to be a sinner, then do you not, if that is what is given freely by Christ, admitting that you are a sinner, does that not make Christ, a minister of sin? If we are found sinners, is he then a servant of sin? And Paul's response, of course, is may it never be. God forbid that we would even think that of Christ. And he does, I believe, in his answer or his response, have four things, four elements to this response. We saw the first in verses 17 and 18 that Christ cannot be a minister of sin because if you go back to making the law your justification, you prove yourself to be a sinner, not Christ to be the minister of sin. If I rebuild the law as my authority, as my way of becoming right with God, it is not Christ leading me to sin, But I am the violator of the law. I am specifically violating those things that, in this context, segregate a Jewish Christian from a Gentile Christian in fellowship and participation in the gospel. But if I rebuild that, he says, then I become a transgressor. And Peter was guilty of doing that, of having torn down that dividing wall and seeing that as torn down and then rebuilding that, wanting to go back as he withdrew from fellowship with Gentile Christians under pressure from the circumcision party. But here he answers, and I believe in these two verses, 19 and 20, gives us the second and third elements of his response. That Christ cannot be a minister of sin because to be justified means that you have made a radical break with the law in Christ. In other words, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. We connect with Christ in his death. But he also says that Christ cannot be a minister of sin because... To be justified means new life in connection with Christ. That I am in him, or the language that I believe means very much the same thing, that Christ lives in me. He says, I live to God and Christ lives in me. Christ cannot be a minister of sin, but through Christ there is a promotion and a desire and a help to not sin to live to God and to give glory to him in life. And the final answer, the final element we will look at, Lord willing, next week is that Christ cannot be a minister of sin because if you go back to making the law your justification, you proved that Christ died for no cause. Paul says, in announcing his own obituary, for through the law, I died to the law. I have been crucified with Christ. Douglas Moo, in his commentary, says there there is a deliberate paradox here. He says it's even provocative language. Through the law, I died to that very same law. In the Greek, the the word for law and law are are right side by side. Through the law, law is that to which I died. The language is very difficult, I think, to understand. Particularly, what does it mean that he died through that law? We, We hear in Paul, in other places, for example, in Romans chapter six, we hear the language that we are among those who have died to sin. Or in Romans 7, you were also made to die to the law. And in each case, and I believe in the case here, what we hear Paul saying is there is a decisive release from the authority and power of some particular entity. There there is a release from that authority, that masterful power that it would have over me. So to die to the law is to die to its demands, to to bear its penalty and no longer be under its curse. And you think, well, how did Paul die to that law? Well, Paul means that he has been released from the binding authority of the law of Moses. And so he says how foolish it would be for Jewish Christians to rebuild that authority again. If you have declared that you are no longer under its authority and that is the way that you preach and proclaim part of the gospel, then to go back under that authority would be foolish for those who have been Jews and are now in Christ. And how wrong it would be of them to proclaim that to the Gentile Christians to be justified by that law if you are indeed dead to that law. If it is no longer your master, if one is dead, then it has no power over you. But again, what does it mean that he died through the law? Well, again, in Romans 7, Paul helps us. He says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Through the law, I came to know sin. And some take this as perhaps that Paul is saying that the law itself persuaded him to abandon the law. As Paul tried to live that law, as he tried to meet the demands of that law, to be perfect, to do everything according to the rituals of the law, the ceremony of the law, the moral proclamation or the requirements of the law. He would be frustrated because we know that no person except the Lord Jesus Christ has ever kept that law perfectly. And yet Paul tried as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He tried. They even added more laws to the law and he met with failure. John Calvin says this is the first use of the law. That it shows us at once kind of a, he says it's a mirror, but it's, it's a mirror that shows us two things. It shows us the perfection of God, perfect in his righteousness and holiness. But at the same time, it shows us ourselves as we really are, totally depraved in our sin and depravity. The law can demand. The law forbids. The law judges, but the law also condemns. And so perhaps he is saying he died to the law. Through the law, it showed him that he could not meet its demands. And he, through that, knowing that, he died to the law because it, in a sense, slays him. It kills him, we hear Paul In Romans, again, saying the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit brings life. And so it's perhaps that he is thinking of that type of thing, that the law and its demands have slain him. Perhaps it is that and more. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now in my Greek New Testament, that phrase, I have been crucified with Christ, is joined with verse 19, not verse 20. And we tend to read that, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, as a sentence. But I believe from what I can understand, that there is that connection between when he says, for through the law I died to the law, I have been crucified with Christ the connection is there the christian's radical death takes place in connection with christ's own death and i know that not all of would agree with me on that but i also would warn us that this is a verse that requires as we spoke of last week that meditation that ruminating on what does Paul mean and what does this mean for my understanding of the gospel and my life. And I say that because this is probably one of those refrigerator magnet verses that some of you have at home or you've seen the bumper stickers on cars driven by people who have no clue what Paul is talking about. But it is that cruel what we consider inhumane criminal execution of which he speaks of Christ. He was crucified, he was, hung. we sang it this morning where, where Jesus said, look at my hands, look at my feet, the, the piercings where I bled, the, the, the cut in my side where the soldier stuck his sword in and out came blood and water as I hung on that cross, crucified in that way. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I don't believe this is a metaphor, that, that we're just thinking in terms of, yeah, yeah, that's kind of what it was like, and I could sort of, again, crass, uh, crass American phrases come to my mind quite often, and I hate them, but I feel your pain. That's not what he means a crucifixion had taken place of Christ and Paul was crucified with him. And I don't know that I can explain all of that, but a crucifixion had taken place of Paul, and I believe, again, by Paul's language, of all believers, that we hung on that cross with Christ because we are in him. We are with him in his death. As one crucified with Christ, Paul died. He died to a whole way of life. He died to the old man. The old man was crucified, the old Paul. And I believe the old Mark and the old Bob, the old Josh, were crucified with Christ. The law put Christ to death on the cross. The law has a penalty of death for sin. What does scripture say? The soul that sins, it shall die. But Christ bore the penalty of that sin for his elect. Therefore, the law brought Christ to the cross. Yes, Christ was obedient to all of the law. He fulfilled the law. And yet it was the law in its purpose. What it was designed to do in its demands and its judgment and its condemnation brought Christ to the cross. And when Christ died, Paul died. When Christ died, all of his who are in him died and so Paul says through the law I died to the law I have been crucified with Christ but we like Paul are free from the penalty of sin not by our merits not by our works of law not by what we have done titles we have things that we have done in this life, but because Christ met the demands of the law and righteously fulfilled them all. Again, as Ritterboss says, the issue is not about the law as norm, but about the law as life principle and life potential for serving God. The law cannot give man that potential. Again, to me, it does not depend on what your definition of law or works of the law is. They cannot be a norm for life to bring you into a right relationship with God. He is speaking, as Bitterbaugh says, of a life principle, a principle of life in Christ. And that is the beauty of Paul's writings Because whenever he speaks of death, does he not follow that almost immediately with life? Where there is death, there is life. There is this thing about it that Paul can't help. Even in the midst of his proclamation through the law, I died to the law. He says, in order that, so that I might live for God, I have been crucified with Christ. See, he's, he's always looking at that, which is life. He, he uses it four or five times in the present tense, life and living. That is what Paul's focus is, is on the life. He, he's not focused on, oh, I'm, I'm dead. And in fact, as, as one of my friends in, in college used to say, he said, I, I've known Christian who, Christians who want to put themselves on the cross. He says, you you might get up there and you might hammer your feet and maybe one of your hands, but you can't finish the job because you can't. We did not crucify ourselves, and the law did not die to us. We died to the law because we've been crucified with Christ in order that we might live to God. Paul said that he had to die that he might live. He had to die to the law in order that he might live to God. And life unto God is not determined by man, but it's determined by Christ and is what it means to come into communion with Christ. The Christian's radical experience is like dying and being, (laughs) wow, sounds scriptural, Born again. Dying and being reborn. And that is how Paul thinks of it again. Not metaphorically. It's not something, yeah, okay, it's kind of like that. Paul says, it's regarding as if you had hung on that cross with Christ, you died. It is a real identification with Christ in his death and in his burial, and yes, in his resurrection. The cruel criminal execution, as one author put it, has become for us this beautiful transformation into something positive and spiritual and life-giving. I have been crucified with Christ in order that I might live to God. And Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. He's identifying fully, completely, with, without any, again, without any hesitation, Christ lives in me. It is no longer I who live. It's a death to my old way of life. And it is at once an entry into a new way of life. The old me had an existence where I was a slave to sin, I was a slave to to the law, and it has been done away with. The new me, whose existence is determined solely and completely and gloriously by the indwelling Christ who lives within me. That's radical. The world does not understand this. Christians, we have a hard time grasping this, and yet that's the language that he wants us to hear, Christ lives in me. It's a vital union, and and it's dominated by Christ. It dominates the life of the believer in every aspect. Everything that the, the old Puritans would say, every thought, every word, every deed is brought under the domination of Christ who lives within me every aspect of my being, what I do with my body, how I think with my mind and my spirit, all, he says, come under that which I think of, of Christ living in me. And he says, the life I now live in the flesh. Oh, see, Paul has not just gone on this mystical journey he is not just out there and whoa, you know, what is he on? He is saying, the life I now live in the flesh. And, and he doesn't speak here of just a flesh as we may think other places in Scripture of, of sin, it's simply the physical life that he has on earth materially, Paul is unchanged. He's still Paul, flesh and blood, with his personality intact, with, with his mind intact, with, with all that he was as a man. But ethically, morally, spiritually, he's a totally different creature. And for Paul, faith is not a topic Faith is not something on a quiz. He says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's his central principle of his life. Doesn't he say, we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and walk by the direction of the Holy Spirit. And so I believe in this context, and we could say a lot about what faith is, but as I can understand it in this context, it seems to me that faith is the opposite of legalism. And I say that because I think most of us, at least me, I'll say, had a wrong idea of what legalism was. I thought legalism was just a list of do's and don'ts. This is what we do if we're a Christian, and this is what you don't do if you're a Christian. But I have come to understand that legalism is, as one commentator says, is that which comes between the soul and God. It's something more than a list. He says it's interposing law in the place of God himself. And like Abraham in Romans, that uh, Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 4, of which it says of Abraham, he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. That seemed to be the heart of what Paul saw in, when it says, and faith was reckoned to him as righteousness, that it is more than a list of do's and don'ts, Our faith is, as Abraham, believing that God is able to do what he has promised and he will perform it. And it is to be, as we walk in this faith, no longer I. Living, I believe, there's two aspects here. And I'm afraid until I did this study, I had tend to focus on only one of the two aspects of what could Paul mean? It's no longer I. One aspect is living a life of death to self. Jesus in Mark chapter 8 says, Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. Or in John 15, he says, if you abide in me and I abide in you, do as you will. Because apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. And so there is that aspect of no longer I is that refusal, that, that disavowing of my former way of life the things that I used to think, the things that I used to do, the places that I used to go. It is no longer I doing those things, but I live by faith in the Son of God. I heard this illustration, or read this illustration, uh, only in one place, and I couldn't confirm it. But Edmund Clowney, in one of his books, writes about Augustine of Hippo, who lived from the 350 to... 430 AD and came to Christ relatively late in life. I think he was about 36 years old and he, as a young adult, he had been very promiscuous. He had run with what some people call a rowdy crowd and had had a number of illicit relationships and Clowney tells the story that Augustine after he had come to Christ, after he had understood some of these things that Paul is talking about had he was found himself walking through the marketplace and as he's walking he's focusing on what he's thinking about and he hears a voice augustine augustine but he keeps walking he keeps that focus and he keeps walking in the marketplace and he hears the voice again augustine augustine and finally he feels a tug on his cloak and he stops and he turns and there is a young lady and she pulls back her veil and says, Augustine, it is I. And he looks at her with pity and sympathy and he says, yes, but it is no longer I. He had renounced that which was sin before God. He had renounced that lifestyle, which did not please God, which did not make for righteousness with God. But I believe there is another aspect, and I don't know who R.A. Cole is, but I believe that he hid it here, particularly in this passage. And I'm going to paraphrase and set a quote, but he says, this passage is not so much exhortation to personal sanctification, but an argument for the total sufficiency and efficacy of the work of Jesus Christ. Do You see, Paul is going immediately to his eulogy. Paul is immediately going to say, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave him, delivered himself up for me. He immediately moves from from this celebration of life that I have in Christ to the one who gave him life. And I I don't know about you, but I don't understand how the word eulogy has been conscripted to be in, in funerals only. My seventh new collegiate dictionary does not even mention funerals when it gives a definition of a eulogy. A eulogy is simply a prepared speech, or writing, extolling the virtues and services of another person. And I can use eulogy here, even though we're not in a funeral service, because Paul extols the services, the virtues, the glory of someone else at his own funeral, and that someone else is his Lord, Jesus Christ. He says, the Son of God who loved me and delivered me, Delivered himself up for me. The language in the Greek is that it is a point of time, and yet the power of it is ongoing. The work of Christ on the cross is complete. We don't do as some do and crucify Christ every day. His work is complete, and yet that power, the same power that raised him from the dead, is ongoing in the lives of believers. Yes, the Son of God loved the world. And even though it uses what I believe is a divine name for Christ, the Son of God, in his humanity, he kept the law, he went to the cross, he was dead and buried and rose again. And yes, he died on the cross for the salvation of the elect. And yet, Paul does give us that window into the individuality of it. He loved me, Paul says. He delivered himself up for me. Personally, for me, Paul, but for every believer in Christ. He loved me. How did he demonstrate that love for me? He gave himself on the cross instead of me. What the works of law could not do, Christ did. He he loved me and delivered himself up for me. Do you not feel the intensity? Do you not, not feel what Paul felt here? The intensity of Christ's love, the intensity of his sacrifice, of his delivering himself up, equivalent to what he speaks of in John as laying himself down. Christ did that for him. And it should not sum up, again, just a concept. It should sum up what Paul means by life, living. What does it mean to live in him, Paul says elsewhere, we live and we move and we have our being. In this Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. And I pray that that would be a discovery for all of you here, a discovery of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. And yet, I pray that we would also remember that one of the reasons we gather together and celebrate communion, celebrate the Lord's Supper together, is because not only individually, but Christ died for the church. And in participating in the life of the church, in the life in the body of Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so my responses are not to myself. I do not live for myself. I do not, and I apologize, but it's out there in the so-called Christian bookstores, books on instruction to live your best life now. But Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I need to be living my best. Christ's best life now. Christ in me, the hope of glory, yes. Christ in me, brother, sister in the Lord, yes. We live and move and have our being in Christ, in his body. And so not just individually, yes, we rejoice, but also corporately we live. And so I would invite you to celebrate with Paul your death and your life. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Let us pray. Our Father, I do pray that you would help us to meditate upon these things. And how can we help it? How can we discard What Christ has done, the love that he had for us, the sacrifice that he bore for us, the giving of himself, delivering himself up for us. Oh, Father, please do not let us forget, but let us meditate on these things. Let us rejoice in these things as we celebrate together his life, his death, his burial and resurrection as we participate together in communion that you would be glorified, and that Christ's church would be builded up. We ask in Christ's name, amen. amen. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let